Could it be Osama bin Laden, who changed the lives of Americans forever when he orchestrated the September 11th attacks on the Twin Towers that killed just shy of 3,000 American citizens? Could it be Maximilian Robespierre? You don't even know who that is, do you? Probably not him, but he did preside over the trial and death of over 40,000 French noblemen, clergy, and politicians during the French Revolution. Maybe the most hated man in French history. Could it be Idi Amin, who oversaw the genocide of hundreds of thousands of his own people in Uganda? Well, most of us probably don't know who he is either. What about Joseph Stalin, the man who constructed a gulag system responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of Russian citizens. Maybe we could consider Mao Zedong, who starved an estimated 30 million of his own people during the Cultural Revolution in China. Well, now we're getting up there. Maybe it's just Hitler, you know? Just go with the the classic, easy answer. I probably don't need to lay out his hate credentials for you. Any of these men, at first glance, could be front runners for the most hated man in all of human history. And the thing is, we haven't even really begun to plumb the depths of history. We've only gone back a century or two. I mean, who can forget about the cruel bloodlust of Ivan the Terrible, or Genghis Khan, or Bloody Mary, or Attila the Hun? And yet none of these figures comes even remotely close to being the most hated person in human history. What if I were to tell you that contrary to popular belief, Jesus of Nazareth is not the most loved person in human history, but is in fact the most hated person in human history? I have three points for you this morning. Here they are. Point number one, the reality of persecution. The reality of persecution. Point number two, the cause of persecution. And then point number three, the response to persecution. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father God, help me to say only that which is true, only that which proceeds from you, only that which will bear eternal fruit. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Point number one, the reality of persecution. Friends, there there is just no sugarcoating it, so let's just say it right at the outset. To sign up for Team Jesus is to sign up for a lifetime of being hated. That's what verse 19 says, just right at the beginning of our text. Chapter 15, verse 19, keep your Bibles open, we're going to be coming back to it. If you were of the world, The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus is saying this to his disciples, but obviously it's not just applying to the eleven there, it's applying to everyone who will then follow in the path of the disciples. Everyone who shares in the same faith of the disciples, everyone who follows King Jesus. During my time in the army, I worked with a young soldier who always just seemed to be very cold towards me. Uh, Her dislike of me seemed to sort of just be oozing out of her pores whenever I would be in her presence. And you know me, never one to avoid an awkward conversation. Uh, One day I I just, I stopped her and I asked her if I had somehow unwittingly, unintentionally offended her. That sounds like something I would do, right? Let me make up for it. Maybe what happened? Tell me, I'll fix it. And the way that she responded, it surprised me. She said, no, I just don't really like people like you. I was shocked. What do you mean, people like me? I tried to play it cool, you know. Is she thinking about the super handsome? <laughs> Maybe? No, she said that she, she couldn't stand Bible-thumping Christians, of whom I am the foremost. A few months into our deployment, I saw her sitting at a desk uh, reading a copy of the new atheist, Richard Dawkins, his book, The God Delusion. And when I saw that, I said, ah, I get it. This young woman has been discipled by a niche subculture of angry atheists 
to be hostile to Christianity. I get it now. Looking back, I realized I didn't get it. Maybe Richard Dawkins and the New Atheist had trained her to be especially hostile towards Christian, Christians in general, but her hatred for me didn't have anything to do with the books that she was reading. It had everything to do with who she belonged to and who I belonged to. You know, I was surprised by this young woman's outright animosity. I think I was surprised because I got saved in Decatur, Alabama, right? It's just one of the easiest places in the world to be a Christian. And by the way, this was, you know, 18 years ago before much of the secular hostility in our culture had really begun to ramp up to the level where it is now. And my encounter with this woman's hostility was not the first hostility or animosity I had ever encountered, but it may have been the most potent in my early walk with Jesus. It was the first time that I could really feel someone's hatred for not just me, but for my faith sort of seething underneath the surface. Now, you'll notice that in verses 18 and 20 of this morning's text, that there are two verbs that Jesus uses synonymously, right? The verb is hate and persecute. Go ahead and just circle that in your Bible if you do that sort of thing, right? The world will hate you or the world hates you. And then in verse 20, the world will persecute you. Same, same. Hatred equals persecution. Persecution equals hatred. Now, the implications of this, I think, are, are pretty obvious, right? The world will persecute us because it hates us. Now, then we have to ask the question, well, why does the world hate us in the first place? Now, we're going to come back to that more in point number two. I, just, I, I know that's probably going to be your next question. Just pause, put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that. Why does the world hate us? Don't worry. We're going to answer that. But for now, I just want us to do something very simple. I just want us to pause and to consider the very basic truth that to put on the Team Jesus jersey is to put a target on our backs. Paul tells Timothy in these words, the same thing that Jesus says in John 15. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They will be hated. That's you. That's me. That's, I mean, I think, I don't know everyone in this room, but I think almost everyone here is here because they desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Yes? Well, guess what? God's promise to you, His bedrock guaranteed promise for you, is that you will be hated, you will be persecuted. Now, listen, if you're here this morning and you're trying to sort of explore the claims of Jesus, I just want to give you full disclosure up front. Jesus' promise that all who follow him will suffer like he did. That's his, his promise. So if you're here and you're considering following Jesus and, and you're like, ah, I'm trying to weigh the pros and the cons. Cons, I have to get up and go somewhere on Sunday morning when I really like to be at home watching football, Right? Pros, maybe I'll get to be a part of a community and have a, a shared ethical and moral system. And, you know, my kids will get to be a part of a youth group, right? As you're sort of weighing out the pros and the cons of following Jesus, put this. Well, actually, we're going to come back to which category you should put this in. But it should register somewhere in your assessment about what you are going to do with not only your life, but your eternity. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, count the cost. Know up front that I'm not promising you a life of ease. Now, when you think of persecution, you, you may think of different things, right? You may have visions of Christians being thrown to the lions in a Roman Colosseum, or you may think of Christians being tortured in concentration camps in North Korea, or you may be thinking of a Christian being thrown from the top of a tall building in the city center of some Muslim locale. And Friends, those are all real examples. That's all real persecution. Yes. But Scripture has a somewhat broader definition of persecution that, that includes things well below the threshold of torture 
and murder. Consider, for example, the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Jesus says this to his followers. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Do you notice those are three different ways of saying the same thing? Revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you. Falsely, on my account. So for Jesus, saying mean and nasty things about someone qualifies as persecution. So the the young, angry atheist who was just really nasty towards me at work, something about me being a Western Christian makes me go, ah, that's not persecution. But it is. It's hatred of me on account of my faith. It's a very low-level persecution, to be sure, but it's persecution nonetheless. And I know that that same instinct that I have is probably the instinct that you have, right? You're like, oh, man, we're Western Christians. We got it good. Freedom to worship the Lord Jesus. You know, our, our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world, they're suffering the real stuff, right? We don't want to equate low-level bullying with martyrdom. We think that to do so would be to dishonor those who are martyred for Jesus, And yeah, that's kind of right. We don't want to equate them perfectly, but I just want us to be clear that that these two things in Jesus' mind are actually in the same category. It's a difference of degree, not in kind. Does that make sense? So let me put a finer point on it. Let me give you a sort of pocket-sized definition of persecution. Persecution is what happens whenever we suffer the consequences of being hated by the world for following Jesus. Persecution is what happens whenever we suffer the consequences of being hated by the world for following Jesus. Not when we're hated because we're arrogant and hypocritical and sinful and when we're jerks towards people, when, when, we, when we act more like the world than the church, but when we are hated for following Jesus. This is persecution. Now, let's bring this back to the main point. Jesus is telling his followers that if we belong to him, we will, without doubt, be persecuted. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you, which is in reference to something that he's probably told them on multiple occasions, maybe even specifically the occasion where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me... They will also persecute you. I just love the way that Jesus helps us to understand his promise. He's like, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking somehow, some way, you're not going to be persecuted. You think you're the one. When I say all who desire to follow Jesus are going to be persecuted, you think, ah, but not me. And Jesus says, nope. A servant is not greater than his master. And man, I've never heard anything truer than the statement that we are not greater than Jesus, right? Just consider Jesus. His love was perfect. His words were perfect. His moral example was perfect. His thought life was perfect. His works were perfect. Everything about Jesus was perfect, and the world hated him. There has never been anyone less deserving of hatred than Jesus, and yet the world found a way to hate him. And if they hated him, they will hate us, because friends, we are far from perfect. Some Christians, um, and, and maybe I've been here as well, maybe this has been my error in the past, but, but some Christians fall into the trap of thinking that we can somehow, some way, outmaneuver this promise. We think we can outmaneuver the hatred of the world. How do we think that? Well, we think that we can be kind enough, loving enough, gentle enough, patient enough, nuanced enough, winsome enough to avoid the hatred of the world. And friends, it's not true. We just can't. Even if we exemplify these qualities to the utmost, we'll still never be these things in the way that Jesus was these things. And they hated Jesus. 
The only, and by the way, that's not to say that we should not be gentle, kind, patient, nuanced, winsome. We should absolutely be all these things. But we also must not be naive. The logic of verse 19, if we can go back there, we're going to kind of keep coming back and touching verse 19, is simple. Just let's read it together again. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Here's the logic of what Jesus is saying. Number one, servant's not greater than his master. Number two, the world just loves itself. Right? Isn't that, isn't that how it works? Alabama fans love Alabama fans, right? Tennessee fans love Tennessee fans. That's all the college football teams I know. And we are not like the world. Jesus says, no, 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 you are from the world. That's true. And you used to be like the world. But I called you out of the world. I made you a new creation. I made you distinct from the world. I made you holy and separate from the world. Therefore... You will be hated because the world looks at you and it goes, hmm, you're not one of us. <clears throat> so my application here is like ridiculously simple. Just have this as a category in your mind. Like prepare your heart and your mind to be hated. And like what does that look like? Be prepared to be called a bigot. You're going to have this conviction about what is ethical and moral in relation to the way you spend your money, the way you use your body, the way you raise a family and educate your children, the way that you work to the glory of God. And the world is going to want you to go in the exact opposite direction, and you're not going to do it, and they're going to hate you for it. Prepared to get passed over for that promotion at work. Guys, I'm serious. This, it's happening. I can just tell you, I, I actually had stories in here, and then I realized I had too many stories to tell. Prepared to not get the job. Prepared to be unpopular on your college campus. Prepared to be marginalized and despised. I know it doesn't feel like that's going to come as you live right now in Decatur, Alabama. But I'll tell you, if it doesn't hit you, it's going to hit your children. Go to chapter 16, verse 2 real quick. Let's just skip ahead in the text just a little. (coughs) Jesus discussing what this hatred will look like, giving his disciples some very specific examples, says this, they will put you out of the synagogues. They will put you out of the synagogues. Now, remember what the synagogue represented for the Jews in the days of Jesus. The synagogue was sort of the sun in the solar system of their social life. Everything was connected to the synagogue. It was the center of their life's web. Now, how does this apply to us today, right? We're not Jews. We don't, we're in a church. We don't go to the synagogue. Well, it means that as we follow Jesus, we can expect to suffer in similar ways. So, yeah, you're not going to be thrown out of a synagogue, but you may lose friends and family members. What do you think Jesus meant when he said, I came not to bring peace but a sword? You may lose business partners. Your neighbors in your neighborhood may wish that you did not live there. This, this happens. A Christian business opens up in a, in a community in a big city where everyone there values LGBTIAQ uh, uh, stuff. They say, we don't want you here. This is what we stand for. We know what you stand for. We think it's hatred. We want you out of here. It means that you may end up feeling lonely, abandoned, hurt, betrayed, and even afraid because of how people treat you on account of Christ. It means that even if you don't literally die for the sake of following Jesus, you may feel like you're dying because of how it feels to lose this life in order to gain Christ. Now, here's just a a question for you to meditate on. Just self-reflection. And maybe you won't have time to think about it while I'm preaching because I'm going to move on to the next thing and you're just going to be going with me. But maybe it's something to think about later, perhaps as you go to bed tonight. Finally free of the screens, free to think. Can you remember the last time that you were despised for the name of Jesus? Can you remember the last time that it caused friction in a friendship 
or with your family. The last time that it cost you something to stand firm on the name of Jesus. Some kind of position in your community. Now, uh, I'm going to try to anticipate an objection to that question. The, the objection could go something like this. But Sean, we live in the Bible Belt, you know? Nobody's going to persecute me. Nobody's going to hate me for following Jesus in the Bible Belt. Wrong. Wrong. The hatred may look different, but you better believe that in the Bible Belt, where everyone has been inoculated against the true gospel of Jesus Christ, where everyone's just sort of playing religious dress-up all the time, just this southern, honorific, moralistic culture, if you come truly following Jesus... They will hate you because you're not of this world, this fake Jesus Christianity world. You're of a different world where the gospel's real. Your genuine love for Jesus will expose their hate masquerading as Christianity. Your newness in Christ will expose their mere niceness in Christ. Do you know what I'm talking about? New compared to nice? I, was, I had some friends... For over a decade, I thought these are the best people in the world. The second I tried to bring the gospel in a real way to come to bear on our relationship, on our friendship, they broke it off. They were very nice people, but I came to see that the newness thing, that wasn't so much present. Your true faith will expose the fraudulence of whatever this is in the Bible Belt. So whether you're here or in communist China or in the streets of Nigeria, it should not surprise you if you encounter hatred for the name of Jesus. And by the way, that's not my verbiage. That's just what John says. A little bit later, he's writing a letter to the church and he's reflecting on their needs and he's reflecting on what Jesus said to him while they were together. And, and then that comes together for this sentence. He says, do not be surprised, brothers. That the world hates you. Don't be surprised. So the next time that you follow Jesus faithfully and you find someone mad at you, angry at you, cutting off ties with you, it shouldn't come as a shock. Now, kids, all, I need all the children, Henry and Levi and Patience and Bella and Colin and everyone, Maddox, even, ooh, she's locked in. Okay, I like what we're doing here. Yeah, listen to me. I want you to know that as you grow up, following Jesus means that people are not going to like you. Some people, maybe even a lot of people, are not going to want to be your friend. They're going to want to be your enemies. Why? Because you don't talk like them. You don't act like them. You don't dress like them. You don't even wear the same Halloween costumes that they wear, right? They want to celebrate death and evil. And you don't want to do that. And that's just going to, it's going to be hard, you know. You're not going to have the kinds of friends you wish you would have. You're not going to be able to fit in the way that you think maybe you should fit in. But I just want you to know that, listen, if you're not of this world, you're never going to fit in. It doesn't matter if you're 3 or 13 or 30. This is just what it's like to follow Jesus. So decide now. Be wise while you're young. Decide now. What do you want most in the world? Do you want to be liked by people? Or do you want to be loved by Jesus? Point number two. The cause of persecution. The cause of persecution. By now, I hope you guys are getting the feel-good sermon you came for this Sunday morning. Hate, hate, hate. Okay, now, now let's ask the next obvious question of the text. The one that we sort of put the pin in earlier. Why does the world hate us? You know, sometimes it feels like the world hates us for no good reason. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying in verse 25, right? Look at verse 25. Whoever hates me... Oh, no, that's verse 23. But the, world, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. So we know that in one sense, at one level, the world's hatred of Jesus is irrational. He never did anything worthy of hate. All he did was love the world, tell the world the truth, try to serve the world, try to save the world, right? So there's no reason for his hatred at a human level. 
But Jesus spends really the rest of this text unpacking at a deeper level, at, with a sort of God's eye view on the situation, the theological reasons why the world in fact does hate Jesus. And I'm going to give you four of the reasons that Jesus gives us in the text here. These are sort of subpoints in point number two. So the first reason why the world uh, hated Jesus and therefore hates us, excuse me, Four reasons why the world hates us is, first of all, because it hated Jesus. This is the logic. Let's go back to verse 18. Just follow the logic here. If the world hates you, know or recognize or understand that this is in light of the fact that it has hated me before it hated you. So Jesus' logic is like, you're downstream from me. You're intimately connected downstream from me. There's no way that... I'm going to experience something that you're not going to experience. Remember last week, the vine and the branch, right? If they hate the vine, they're going to hate the branch. Now, <clears throat> we need to go a little deeper on this than we did in, in point number one. We, we need to ask the very specific question, why did the world hate Jesus? And part of the answer can be found in verses 22 and 23 and 24. Look there. Jesus says, this is the reason why they hate me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Here, once again, in the text, we see the utter intimacy of Jesus and the Father. They are one. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. But here, Jesus says that essentially they've hated him because his words and his works have convicted them of sin. Right? That's what Jesus means when he says, otherwise they would not be guilty of sin. What does he mean, otherwise they would not be guilty of sin? Does he mean that before the incarnation, all these people were just totally innocent of sin? Well, no. What he means is that the incarnation, his visible ministry, his fleshly presence, it puts their guilt on full display. Before he came, they might have, could have said, ah, well, you know, God, you know, we never really saw you. We didn't know, even though our conscience bears witness to us and we just suppress the truth in our righteousness. But after Jesus came and did all of the works that the Father gave him to do, anyone who saw that, they're without excuse. And what this does is it exposes their evil. It exposes their corruption. And it puts it on full display. And you know what, guys? You should understand this in the same way that I understand this. Nobody wants to have their sinfulness put on display. No one wants to be exposed. No. One, why do you think Adam hid after he realized he was guilty? Because he was naked and exposed. His corruption was seen by God. And what Jesus is saying is that's what my ministry does. And it takes away every excuse. Because listen, when you're first naked and exposed and guilty, what's the first thing you do? You try to make an excuse. You try to justify yourself. It's just like an automatic reflex. I can't tell you how many times I've been in an argument with my wife where I've said or done something stupid and then the next thing out of my mouth is another thing that's stupid and it's really just an attempt to justify myself. And I didn't plan on that. It just comes up out of me. That's what the world does with Jesus. Now, uh, one of the benefits of preaching through a whole book of the Bible and for you all walking through a whole book of the Bible together the way that we have is that you get to see sort of some of the threads <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Some of the themes. Marco Rubio moment here. <sighs> you get to see some of the, the themes that weave through the... So like in John's gospel, this is not the first time that we've encountered this idea that the world hates Jesus because his ministry exposes their sin. All the way back in John chapter 3, Jesus anticipated this. He said this, The light has come into the world, that's me, Jesus, and people loved the darkness, their sin, rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, 
lest his works should be exposed. The world hates Jesus because he exposes them. Point number two. The world will hate us. Oh, sorry, by the way, I should say. And the world hates us because we carry on that same ministry of Jesus. But we're going to come to that again here in a minute. Subpoint number two, the world will hate us because it is convicted by us. Look at verses 26 and 27. <clears throat> but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So what Jesus is saying here is that all those who follow him are called to bear witness in the same way that he did. And that's part of what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit helps us do that. We're going to come back and talk about this more in point number three. For now, subpoint number three. The world will hate us because we are not like them. Now, we already addressed this in point one. I know it feels like there's a lot of repetition this morning, and maybe there is. But I want us to hit it again from a different angle, okay? So, listen, as I was thinking through this, I just can't help but put myself in and think about it through the lens of my own experience. And I'm a pretty sociable guy, right? I'm, I'm, I'm sticky. I'm, I'm kind of like people Velcro. I can get, go into a room. I can get along with almost anyone, anywhere. But let me tell you what I've found to be incredibly difficult in the 18 years that I've been following Jesus, I found it to be difficult to, to have friendships, not acquaintances, but to have friendships with unbelievers. Now, why is that? Why is it so hard, even though I have adamantly tried? Well, at the end of the day, it's because of what we saw in verse 19. We're not from the same place, right? Believers in unbelievers are just fundamentally different. We're not from the same place. We don't believe the same things. We don't share the same loves. We don't speak the same language. Moreover, if I'm going to be your friend, one of the ways that I'm going to be your friend is I'm going to try to bring the gospel to come to bear on your life. And if you're not of Christ and you don't believe the gospel and you don't love the gospel and you haven't put your trust in the power of the gospel, you're not going to like that very much. So very practically, what does that mean? It means that my relationship with my non-Christian friend is going to go one of two ways. Either that person's going to get saved, and that's happened, or we're just going to sort of fizzle out into something else. Just a casual acquaintance. I'll see you out and about, and I'll be nice, and I'll ask how the kids are doing, but there's not going to be anything more substantial there. I grew up uh, with a young man named Quentin. Some of you have met him. We ran the streets together. His mom was a drug addict. My mom was a drug addict. We got into fights together. We chased girls together. We sold drugs together. We shoplifted. We got arrested together. And, and you should do none of these things, children, if you're listening. But we did all these things together, and I thought that our bond was unbreakable. I thought no matter what, nothing will ever come between me and my best friend. And then I got saved. And for a decade, I tried to maintain my relationship with him. But it, it just never worked. Just any time we would move beyond pleasantries, any time we would move beyond trifles, just beyond the superficialities of this life, any time I would try to talk to him about his life, his family, his career, his relationships, anything, the gospel would come to bear. And friction would ensue. Now, why am I belaboring this point? Because I just think it's good for us to ask, how does the world view us? And when I say the world, I don't want you to think of some amorphous blob of non-Christians out there. I want you to think of specific people. I want you to think about perhaps your unsaved spouse. I want you to think about your unsaved family members, your unsaved friends, your unsaved employees, your unsaved boss, your unsaved co-workers. And I want you to ask yourself, how do they view me? Do they think I'm just one of the boys? Do they think I'm one of theirs? Do they think I belong to the same world that they belong to? Subpoint so number four. 
They will hate us because they do not know the Father. I think if you were to uh, ask most non-Christians why they, if they don't like Christians, why they don't like Christians, they would probably never say something like this. Well, we don't like them because deep down in our hearts, we understand that they are bearing witness to us about our lostness and the holiness and righteousness of the God that loves them and saved them and chose them and called them and made them holy. They're probably never going to say that. At the end of the day, we don't like them because they represent Yahweh and King Jesus. No, they're not going to say that. What are they probably going to say? They're going to say, because those evangelicals are always trying to tell us what to do with our bodies. And they're trying to tell us who we can marry and not marry. And they're always just so hypocritical, you know? And by the way, Christianity, it just reinforces the patriarchy. Right? These are the kinds of answers that you're probably going to get. What you'll notice is... Uh, I think that these reasons are more sociological than theological. That's what D.A. Carson says in his commentary on this portion of John, right? He says, the reason why the world hates us, we would assume that it's sociological, that it's, it, it has to do with how we relate to them in society, but actually the issue is much deeper than that. It's actually theological. Look at verse 21. Go back to 1521. <clears throat> Jesus, speaking of the hatred And the persecution says, all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Not on account of your position on abortion. Not on account of the track record of the hypocrisy of the church. On account of my name. Everything that my name represents. Because they do not know him who sent me. That is why we will be hated. And then you can see this further elaborated. Just go down to verse 23. Whoever hates me hates my father. Here's the sort of hierarchy if you want to map it out in your head, if you're like the engineer type, right? At, at the base level, there's a hatred of the father. Jesus is from the father. Therefore, if they hate the father, they hate Jesus. And then we are from Jesus. Therefore, they hate the father. They hate Jesus. They hate us. And Jesus says, at the end of the day, they hate him because they don't know him. Right? If you knew God the Father, the creator of the universe, the one who's perfectly loving, perfectly kind, perfectly just, perfectly good, you wouldn't hate him. You couldn't hate him, but you don't know him, so you do. Now, when you think about this ignorance, which is really what we're talking about, not knowing God, I want to be careful. I want you to be careful to make sure that you're thinking about the right kind of ignorance. There's more than one kind of ignorance. Some ignorance is unchosen and therefore innocent. But Jesus says that the world's ignorance of the Father is chosen and culpable. Jesus says that the world's ignorance of the Father is self-inflicted ignorance. It's born of hatred and malice and rebellion. It says, I don't know him and I don't want to know him. That's what our depravity says about God. Now, what does this mean for you? You who have been given the mission to go and tell the world about Jesus. What does it mean for you when the ones that you are trying to talk to would rather have, hear anything else in the world than what you have to tell them? It means that they're going to hate the messenger. They're going to shoot the messenger. To not use non-colloquial terms, it means that they're going to hate you and that they are going to persecute you. Now, I want you to see something really incredible in verse 2. I've got to take this off. So hot. Something really incredible in verse 2. Am I good? They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering a service to God. This is the depth of ignorance and hatred that the world is experiencing. Jesus says that the enemies of God are so ignorant of God that they think that killing his children will make him happy. And we've seen this before, have we not? Don't we know this story? Who does it remind you of? The Apostle Paul? 
right? Before his conversion, right? Paul writes to the Galatians talking about his pre-conversion life. And he says this, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And all this he does as a zealous Jew. He's like, God, don't worry. I'm going to get them on your behalf. These stupid Christians. In the book of Acts, Luke tells the readers, his readers, that Paul's whole life was dedicated to destroying the church, going from house to house. He would drag off men and women and put them in prison. And we know from the stoning of Stephen, Paul was probably the one there. He would only, not only drag them off to prison, but also drag them off to their death. Paul had a reputation. He was the guy who was eager to defend God, to serve God by killing and maiming and imprisoning Christians. Some of the Christians in the book of Acts, when they hear that Paul has been converted, they're suspect. They're suspicious. This is what they say. Isn't this the man who wreaks havoc on the church in Jerusalem? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners? They can't believe it. They're like, no, no, no. This guy's a secret operative. He's still, he just found a different way to persecute the church. And then Paul elaborates on his ministry of persecution more significantly in Acts 22. He describes it like this. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I, I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. He was like, this is how eager I was. I would go, I was the bounty hunter. I would get a bounty, I'd go hunt these guys down. I'd put them in chains and I'd bring them back and send them to their death. That was my ministry. Now, why did he do all these things? Well, Paul gives his answer. In, in, in chapter 22, verse 3 in the book of Acts, he says that he persecuted the church because he was zealous for God. And the same sort of thing is still happening today. It just goes through cycles, just different iterations, different places, different times, different cultures, different people. They do the same thing. It can probably see, be seen most clearly in our day in the more orthodox streams of Islam. Right? The Muslim religion says that to be a friend of Christianity is to be an enemy of Allah. Right? And it says to be a friend of Allah is to be an enemy of Christians. Therefore, when a Muslim kills a Christian, it doesn't matter where it happens Sudan, Nigeria, Indonesia, the UK. And by the way, these are each places where Christians have been martyred by Muslims for the, for the name of Jesus. Wherever it happens, the Muslims who do it think that they are offering a service to God. Now, I just want to point out here that um, I, I hope you've noticed that every Sunday we pray for the persecuted church. We do that in part as obedience to Hebrews 13.3, which tells us this. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated for the gospel since you also are in the body. So, so we pray for the persecuted church every Sunday in our pastoral prayer. But I, I also wonder if, if you've noticed that from time to time, we pray for those who persecute. We don't just pray for the persecuted. We also pray for the persecutors. Why do we do that? We do it because we pray that there will be some persecutor out there who comes to share in the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Right? We pray that there will be someone out there who thinks that they're serving God, who's zealously out there getting after it, hurting and harming and, and killing Christians in the service of God, and that they will be radically converted, and that they will share in the same testimony of the Apostle Paul, of whom it is said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Amen. Point number three. This will be the shorter of the three. Our response to persecution. Not that anyone in our congregation really cares because I don't publish it, but I, I always have a title for my sermon. sort of helps me distill the point of the sermon down into one phrase or one idea. The title for this morning's sermon is Persecution and Perseverance. Now, the persecution part's pretty obvious, right? But what about the perseverance part? What about the perseverance part? Look at chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to 
keep you from falling away. Why does Jesus spend so much time with this little sermonette telling them that they're going to be hated, telling them that they're going to be persecuted? He says, because at the end of the day, I want you to persevere. There's something about me telling you that these things are coming down the pipeline that will help you to persevere. One commentator says that the the greatest danger for the Christian is not persecution, but apostasy. I think he's right. And in this morning's text, Jesus is like a loving father, and he's, he's preparing his children for the day when he won't be there for them. Right? He says, hey, I want you to know that there's hatred and there's persecution and it's coming down the pipeline. And I don't want you to be shocked by this when it hits you for the first time. You know, like a homeschooler, right? First day in, in philosophy class and they hear a whole bunch of stuff that nobody ever prepared them for. They're going to be shell-shocked. Now, I want you to see something uh, in chapter 16 that maybe that you might have missed on the first read-through. So in verse 1, Jesus says, I have said these things to you. Do you see that? Look down in verse 1. Jesus says, I have have said these things to you. Now go down to verse 4. Jesus says the same phrase, but I have said these things to you. You see that? Now in verse 1, he says, I have said these things to keep you from falling away. But in verse 4 he says, I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you rem- may remember that I told them to you. What's the significance of that? The significance is this. Jesus is saying that the thing that will help you to not fall away is that you remember his word. That's how you don't fall away. You remember the words of Jesus. This is uh, something we've already seen in John's gospel several times, but what's really interesting about chapter 16 is this is where Jesus really begins to connect this ministry of remembering for the sake of perseverance with the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So what Jesus is saying is, he says, listen, the the Holy Spirit coming, this will be an advantage to you, disciples. Now, how how will it be an advantage? Well, Jesus says, he, he will serve you in my absence. This is pretty significant. If you think about the disciples and their track record, doesn't it make sense that once Jesus leaves, they're going to be found weak? and vulnerable, I mean, they're going to fall away. If they're just sort of left alone in the world, if they're abandoned in the world, if their master and Lord cannot somehow, someway maintain open lines of communication and discipleship with them, they're not going to make it. We've already seen that since they've been with him, they didn't make it, a couple of them. And on multiple occasions, all of them would have fallen away were it not for his grace. They don't stand a chance. So, what do you do? You send the helper. You send the Holy Spirit. Just, I want you to have just a general theology of this as you consider your Christian life. Jesus calls us to do impossible things for the glory of his name, things that we would never be able to do, and he tells us the only way that we will be able to do them is by the help of the Holy Spirit that he has sent to be with us. So just consider this away from John 16. Consider in something more common. The Great Commission, right? The Great Commission says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's impossible. That's that's impossible. But here is Jesus' reassurance. He says, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. With us how, Jesus? You're not in this room with me right now. Or is he? No, he's with us by the power and presence of his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, he has many roles in the life of the Christian. Some of them not so pleasant at one level. Not all rainbows and sunshines. Go back to chapter 15. I just want to show you something real quick. 15, and go to verse 26. (coughs) 
But when the helper comes, you got to love this title. When the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. There's a lot of theology in there. He will bear witness about me. And then it says, and you will bear witness. Now, what does this mean that the Holy Spirit's going to bear witness? It means that he's going to carry on the same ministry that Jesus had through us. What was the ministry that Jesus had? Convicting the world of sin. The Holy Spirit's going to carry on that ministry. And Well, how does he carry it on? Through whom does he carry it on? He carries it on through us. Which means that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to ensure our continued hatred and persecution. Put that in your daily devotional. Oh, the Holy Spirit, we praise you for ensuring that the world will continue to hate us for the name of Jesus. But it's there. Now, one of the reasons why this doesn't really bother us as Christians, one of the reasons why we can still have confidence, even though that is one of his ministries in our life, is because we know that the Holy Spirit is God. And because he's God, he can wear more than one hat. Yes, he does ensure our persecution by causing us to bear witness against the sinful world, but he also ensures our perseverance. You see the title now? Persecution and Perseverance. He reminds us of the words of Jesus so that we must keep going. Look at chapter 16, verse 13. Remember when I told you guys this was going to be the shortest point in the sermon? It felt like that was true when I said it. Looking back now, I don't know where I got that from. I don't know where I got that from. Verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now listen, there are two layers to this promise. This promise that the spirit will lead us into all truth. The first layer is just for the disciples. This is about writing scripture. Right? Laying the foundation for the church by giving the disciples the words of Jesus, which would be inscripturated and handed down to us in the Bible. Okay, so that's for the disciples, it's for the apostles, capital A apostles, not, not us, the sent ones. But there is a, a deeper level in which this plum, promise also applies to us. The promise is that the Holy Spirit will lead all true disciples of Jesus into the truth of God's Word. That is one of his main ministries. We are not the authors of Scripture, but we are the inheritors of Scripture. So what does the Spirit do? As you are looking at the wisdom of the world, and it looks so shiny, and you feel so tempted to listen to and to, to trust in the wisdom of this world, the Holy Spirit comes, and you remember when like the guy would be bombing on stage in cartoons, and the, the cane would come out and grab him by the neck and pull him off the stage? That's what the Holy Spirit does. He just comes, and he pulls you away from this world, and he pulls you back to God's word. And he, even if you're like, like a toddler and you just won't even look, he grabs your head and he, he brings it down and he, he brings you back to the word. He leads you to the water and he causes you to drink deeply from it. That is his ministry. Now, in conclusion, this, this whole story of persecution and perseverance Consider the fact that this really is the story of Jesus and his earthly ministry. He came to this world in love. He told the world the truth. The truth about who they were and who he was and the world hated him for it. And they still do. And when you think about persecution, understand that Jesus experienced the full spectrum of hatred and persecution. He was on the low side of things, hated Mocked, gossiped about, slandered, reviled. But he was also, maybe in the more middle category, abandoned. And then he was tortured. And then finally, he was killed. But more than experiencing physical pain and losing his physical life, the persecution that he endured led to him going to the cross where he experienced the wrath of God. He experienced a kind of suffering due to his persecution, that we will never know. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. Through the deepest possible suffering, Jesus persevered. Now, what kept him in the will of the Father? What caused him to persevere, 
even when as he was sitting there in the garden, what he wanted more than anything else in the world was to run from the cross. Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Jesus didn't want to be within a million miles of the wrath of God on the cross. How did he get there? What kept him on the path of perseverance that led all the way to his resurrection and glory? Well, one answer comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2. He endured the cross and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. Friends, there's a joy set before us this morning. And it's the same joy that was set before Jesus. It's not like the, the joy that we can expect from the Father is some sort of leftover joy, some sort of hand-me-down joy. You know, you get, a, you get a new TV and you give the old TV to someone as a gift. No, Jesus is giving us the same joy that he received from the Father. Your heavenly Father loves you. And he has prepared an everlasting joy for you. And it cost him dearly to give you that joy. It cost him the lack of his own son. Jesus had to lose all of his joy in order for you to receive the joy of heaven. He had to pass through the terrors of sin and death and hell. Now, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I wish that I could tell you that your path to joy will look different than Jesus's. I mean, in some sense, yes, but I mean, at a fundamental level, I wish that I could tell you that there was some kind of path that you could take to the eternal joy of God in heaven forever, singing with the angels, the, the heavenly feast of the Lamb. I wish that I could tell you that there was a road that could take you there that was not the same road of suffering that Jesus took, but it doesn't exist. There's one road. There's one way. Jesus says, I am the way. The only way out is to first go deeper in. You must suffer with Christ before you can reign with him. You must endure before you can enjoy. You must die before you can live. And friends, we just need to be honest. We need to say that some professing Christians in this room will not persevere to the end. I pray to God that's not true. It is literally my prayer that that is not true. That every person here who claims to call on the name of Jesus will one day enter into the joy of their master. But the fact of the matter is, is that some of us may have fallen in love with something that has nothing to do with Jesus. We fell in love with Southern Christianity or Churchianity or Christianity light or you know, we just really like being a part of this social club or this is culturally what I find most appealing or this is the ethical and moral system that makes the most logical sense to me. You can do all of that and still not know Jesus in the slightest. And you can live your whole life like that in Decatur, Alabama. You know? But what happens when the persecution comes? Jesus told a parable about this. He said... He said, you know, my seed, the, the word of the gospel, it goes out to all these different kinds of soil. And he says, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. That may be some of us. That may be you. If, if your testimony is that you got really excited about Jesus at a church camp or in a college ministry or because you went to some church service one day where the pastor said something and got you really emotionally worked up. Friends, that's not sure ground to stand on. That is not the rock of Christ that you can build the security of your eternity on. That is sand. And when the wind and the waves of the storm of persecution and suffering come to bear down on your life, your faith will not last. It will show that it never really was faith. My prayer for our church and for the future members of our church 
is that we will have the testimony of the Apostle Paul, that we were persecuted but not forsaken, that we have been struck down but not destroyed because we believe the promise that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe with our hearts what we can clearly see in your word. Help us to not only see these things, but to love them, to cherish them, and to obey them. By your grace and for the glory of your name we pray. Amen.